Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 4. And just a little bit more insight of how I think the Lord is leading on Wednesday and Sunday evenings. Um, we're going to continue the next few stories, narratives in the book of Second Samuel are rather short, kind of short. Um, so they'll be appropriate, even though I'm trying to kind of trim down our time on Wednesday nights um, to continue to work through um, some of these stories about David. And then my plan is, after a few weeks here, to switch the David study to Sunday evening um, and then start, uh, you could say, the minor letters, the smaller letters, certainly uh, not minor in emphasis, smaller letters of the New Testament, sometimes letters that we, we tend to breeze over and not notice as much. So we're actually going to start that study this Sunday night, and then we'll swap it out eventually in a couple of weeks. We're going to start with the book of Titus for the Sunday night. And then Titus by Lehman, First, um, Second, and Third John, and Jude are going to be our, our focus on that. So looking forward to getting into these studies with you. And we're still doing David, so don't be concerned about that. We're going to get through this one way or another. So a shorter story tonight, but one that is, is very important and interesting contrast between what we talked about last time. And you'll see that here. Chapter four and verse one, um, we have King Ishbosheth, who remember we'll refer to him as the puppet king. We're not trying to be unkind, but even we'll see here in this narrative, even all of Israel recognize this, the, the northern kingdom. Abner is dead. Abner, the general, Saul's general, who established his remaining son, Ishbosheth, as king. And Joab, unfortunately, made sure of that, killing of, of Abner. Um, and Abner was a real power behind Ishbosheth. And now that he's gone, Ishbosheth is very anxious and very concerned, as well he should be, and very fearful. What is he going to do next? And so with that, we'll look and see what, what we have here in this story. Verse 1, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, again making it apparent, this is the last of Saul's son that still survived, heard that Abner, and that was his general, the real power behind him, had died at Hebron. And of course, that was through Joab, through Joab's treachery. And remember, David made it clear when he found this was not what David wanted. David said, in fact, let's, let's just look at a couple, a couple verses before chapter 3, um, verse 38. And the king, David, said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, these sons of Zariah, Joab and his brothers, are more severe than I the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And you can just hear his frustration. This is not at all what he what his plan was. And he knows it's not, it's not God's way. God's sovereign plan is obviously allowing these things. But he knows it's not God's way. And the people under him aren't following his example and following God's way. And it's making them very frustrated. And obviously, we can understand that. He's trying to be gentle and careful. Got these vengeful, angry guys that serve with him, and he's frustrated by that. 
Um, but even more than David's frustration is Ishbosheth's fear now. It said his courage failed. I mean, this man is terrified, to put it bluntly. Um, and all of Israel was dismayed. Why would the whole country be dismayed about this? Well, like I mentioned just a few minutes ago, both Ishbosheth and all of Israel know that the power and strength behind his authority has now collapsed. I mean, they don't have any structure. They know that Ishbosheth is, is a, you know, David's going to refer to him as a righteous man. He's a nice guy, but he's a weak king. He's powerless. And his officers, those under him, begin to realize this as well. And we're going to find two that make plans to capitalize on his weakness. Let's continue to move on, verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains. Saul's son is referring to Ishbosheth again. Had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, and the other was Rechab, sons of Remon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. That's a lot of names and places. Obviously, the narrator is really trying to, if he's giving us this much detail, he wants us to pay attention to these details. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaeon and have been sojourners there to this day. Okay, that's a lot of information. We'll just sum it up real quick. These two captains are from the tribe of Benjamin, and it seems a group of these, maybe a rogue group of Benjamites, had left their tribe and had lived in a separate town, lived apart from the tribe for a long time. So um, I think this partly here to for the narrator to point out that these men, even though they live in a town apart from their tribe, they're still Israelites, and that's important. These are countrymen. But they were leaders of guerrilla bands, says they were captains. Um, these were bands that would go out, like we've described before, even like David and his men would do, and they would go out and fight the enemy, defeat the enemy, and take all the plunder and bring it back. And that was the main source of income and wealth for the, for the whole country. So they were very important in what they did. And these, these captains then, uh, these guys, again, named Rimon and, oh, I'm sorry, Rechab and Bana um, are these captains, and they get their own idea about what to do about Ishbosheth. Um, and we understand from what's going on here that they are definitely countrymen, they're Israelites, and they're getting ready to hatch a plan to rise up against their leader. But before it gets any further into that, isn't it interesting here? Verse 4 makes this random segue into a totally different story here. It gives us random information in the midst of this story. Um, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell, he fell, and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. I remember that name, if you know these stories well. And we know that eventually we're going to get to that famous story about his interaction with David. But why put this part of the story in the, and insert it in the midst of this narrative where it doesn't seem to fit at all? It's really kind of strange. It does give us information about the Philistine's background. This means that he's Saul's grandson. He's Jonathan's son. 
And what it's saying is when the Philistines overtook and defeated the Israelites and poor Saul and Jonathan and his brother were killed, that there were people in these towns, if you'll remember, that had to leave the towns in a hurry and flee. And Mephibosheth was in one of these towns with his nurse, with the woman that took care of them. And she was in a panic, picked him up, and she went to flee. And as she ran out of the city, she fell or she, she dropped him and it damaged his legs for his lame. So that helps set up the story later on and the opportunity that David will have to follow through and make good on his covenant with Jonathan. That, that's important. David made that promise, very serious covenant with Jonathan. And now we get an idea of how he's going to follow through on that. That still doesn't make sense. doesn't really tell us why in the midst of this story. So I think basically what the narrator is kind of saying here is he's trying to make clear, if by chance something happens to Ishbosheth, as we'll see in just a minute, I think he's saying something might just be happening to Ishbosheth very soon. And I want everyone to understand that doesn't mean that the end of Saul's, that doesn't mean that that's the end of Saul's line of descendants. There's still others like Mephibosheth who will carry on Saul's lineage. So he's already kind of setting us up that something's going to happen here with Ishbosheth in the midst of all this. And that's why that's placed there. Now back to the story again, and we're given the names. Now the sons of Rimon, the Barathite, again, making it clear where they lived and that they are Israelites, their countrymen. Rechab and Bana set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday arrest. So they are intent and they are committed, even in the heat of the day, to make their way to Ishbosheth house for a particular purpose and they made sure it was about the time that this is he's taking a nap his royal nap i don't know that this scripture would be the basis of supporting napping but you know, naps do help and if you want to take it that way i guess you could certainly ishbosheth um, did this regularly it's not going to help him in this instance though and they came verse six into the midst of the house as if to get wheat so they end up under false pretenses of getting food. And we may have some indication here of some of the notes of some of your translations that there was a doorkeeper of the house that had fallen asleep. So uh, they would have had easy access, if that's the case, to Ishbosheth. And uh, it says they went in under false pretenses and then just very direct. And this gets a little gruesome. They stabbed them in the stomach. And then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. Now, it's interesting. Don't misunderstand here because verse 7 says, but when they came into the house, now it's like, okay, did they run away and then come back? The narrator is using a specific story device here. And that is he's giving us the summation of what happened. And then he's going back and expanding it further, giving us more details. Kind of like, okay, here's the quick version. This is what happened. They killed Ishbosheth. But now I'm going to explain further about how they did so. Okay? So that's what's happening in verse 7. When they came into the house, this is the more detailed explanation. As he laid on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death. And again, gruesome here, beheaded him. But this was what you did with kings back then to let people know that you had killed the king and ended his life. 
Um, so gruesome, yes, but we see here that they're very intent upon Ishbosheth not reigning anymore and, and David taking his place. And so then they, they sneak back out um, and they go a, a separate way to get to David. A way that actually would take them around the Dead Sea, an alternative route to reach David at Hebron. And so they've done this thing and they've, they've gotten away with it. Verse, let's see, end of verse seven, they took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night through the desert around the Dead Sea and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. You can imagine as they went through all this effort to do this, and they finally come before David, and they're, they're excited. They're proud about this. David, guess what we did? And again, the gruesome aspect of providing the evidence was at this time a normal way of letting you know. They, they weren't just boasting. They did do this thing. Um, and what are they thinking here? They think that they're going to um, present David with this trophy of war and that they have, they say here, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, on Saul and on his offspring. They've deluded themselves into thinking that they were God's tools of vengeance towards Saul's house. Well, that, this plan may have seemed well um, prepared and successful to them, but they obviously don't know. We know this, but they don't know David very well. But they would have realized this was not the right choice for them to make. And I can even imagine those that were around David as soon as these men come up and they're like, uh-oh, get ready, guys. This isn't going to happen well. These guys aren't going to be around much longer. And what is David's response here? Verse 9, David answered Rechab and Bena, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Barathite, he continues to give us that information to remind us, these are Israelites. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Now, David is making it clear right up front that he's not pleased. And something else to point out here, as I, I just said, the text, the author is obviously making it clear that these men are fellow countrymen, that they're unlike, remember the story of the Amalekite that, um, killed Saul and came back, and David thought he was going to win David's favor, and we, David will bring that up in a minute. Well, the Amalekite was a foreigner. These men are Israelites. And David is already making it clear he's not pleased, and he points out the Lord has redeemed him out of all of his troubles. David says, God has saved me and taught me much, and I will follow his way, basically what he's saying here. I will be consistent in carrying out the way of the Lord. God has been faithful to me, men. I will be faithful to him. And you need to have that understanding up front here because what you have done is wicked. Right? Verse 10 When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and he thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward, I know tongue in cheek there, that I gave him for his news. This Amalekite came to me, men, and he thought that he had done a good thing by killing Saul. And so they wanted, he wanted a reward, so I gave him a reward, and he's no longer living, right? And so he says, verse 11, how much more when wicked men 
have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Why would these men be considered more wicked, his own countrymen, than this Amalekite? Well, if you remember, Saul asked, from what we can tell, I think the best explanation of what happened at that time was Saul tried to kill himself, wasn't wholly successful. The Amalekite came, and Saul asked him to finish the job. Um, so it wasn't premeditated murder on the Amalekite's part. But with these men, no excuse. This was premeditated. This was planned. And David says, this was wicked. You men are wicked. And you've killed, this may surprise you, but you've killed a righteous man. He describes Ishbosheth in that way. And in a cowardly way, while the man's taking a nap, that's not a valiant way to dispose of your foe. And he says, if I did, if, if I ended the other man's life for how he handled Saul, I have to be consistent with the way of the Lord and require Ishbosheth's blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth. He's asking this in a question, and we know the answer to this. Uh, these guys are in a lot of trouble. They thought that they were going to be in good standing with David. Instead, verse 12, and David commanded his young men, and they killed them. And again, a little bit of goriness here, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. The wicked men, they were executed as criminals and treated as such. When a criminal was executed in this way, um, again, it's a kind of gross description here, but they would do this. They would hang parts of the body outside the city to let people know that this person was taken care of. And don't you dare do this. By the way, isn't that the same reason why Jesus was crucified? right outside the city as an example for other people. Like the other criminals, he was prosecuted as a criminal to proclaim to everyone that for most criminals, they didn't want to be involved in that. But remember then Pilate said, but this man was killed for being the king of the Jews. So the same with, with this. David is making it clear with these men. He's letting everybody know, don't you dare do what these men did. They're wicked. That was wrong. They acted against God's man, God's anointed man. He still looked at Ishbosheth, even with all the frustration that I'm sure I'm sure took place with the kingdom being divided and all of this. Um, and, and I don't think that David even really blamed Abner in this. He looked at it as God's work. And so, of course, when he looks at King Ishbosheth, Saul's son, he's going to look at him as God's anointed as well. And then it is wrong to take his life. And then he treats Ishbosheth, his remains, with respect. The respect and honor that he would give an anointed leader. David gives that to Ishbosheth. And that's the end of our story here. But let's give a couple applications. I don't know if this comes across to you, but as I was studying this, one of the first questions I had, if you'll contra uh, contrast this to our story last week, why was David's reaction different here than with Joab? Joab didn't do right either. He didn't follow the, the, the way of peace that David wanted him to. He tricked Abner into coming back and called him aside and got rid of him, stabbed him in the stomach. I mean, he basically did the same thing that he's not good to Ishbosheth. 
why didn't David just have Joab executed at that point as well and make an example of him? And I thought through that. Um, you might have some of your own ideas that you can let me know there. But I do think it is the beginning. It is true that this is the beginning with Joab of a double standard with this particular man, David. I think we're going to see that later on. And, and Joab is going to cause David a lot of grief later on as well. David doesn't handle Joab, and this is going to be a pattern with Joab, that he basically will do what David asks him to do when it is convenient for him. But we're going to see also when Joab wants to do what he wants to do, like with Abner, he's just going to do it. And David really doesn't deal with him like we think he should. In fact, we'll find out later on that Solomon comes along and is king, and David says to Solomon, would you deal with Joab since I haven't done such a good job of that? Um, I do think that there is a type of double standard that David has here. He's not perfect. He did deal with Joab, but not the same way with these men. It's interesting. Remember Jonathan, obviously. Jonathan was David's friend in the Lord in his past. We're going to see with Joab, he's going to have more of a negative influence on David in the future. He's going to act more like David's accomplice in a lot of things that David shouldn't have been involved with. And Joab's going to go along with him. So Joab's kind of the anti-Jonathan of this. And really, in the end, he's, he's going to be less helpful for David. Um, he's going to be more trouble for David than help. So I do recognize that I think this is the beginning of something where David is kind of blind to how he treats Joab. But let's go back to the question. On the technicality, Abner, Saul's general, did instigate a war right, with Judah. And even though accidentally he did kill Asahel, uh, Joab's brother, okay, Abner was involved in these things. And so maybe David thought with Joab, well, I can let Joab skate on a technicality. I won't take his life, but I'll still condemn him. Remember at the end that we just read, he calls on God. He's so angry with Joab. He says, God, you deal with him. You make him know that he's done wrong. So he still does that, but he doesn't end his life like he does with these other men. Well, what's the difference? Well, Ishbosheth, in contrast, was never accused of any sin. David calls him a righteous man. Now, he, he might say, well, he was a weak leader, and he was. It's not a sin, necessarily. And he may have been envious, and he jumped to conclusions with Abner, so those are sins, but they're certainly not anything to um, execute someone over. And so what you have here in the end, Arekab and Bena were guilty of premeditated and calculated murder against a man that David calls righteous and doing it in a cowardly fashion. Come on, that guy's napping. But there's nothing, there's nothing honorable about that. These men did this to get something from David. And so it's more of an open and shut case with these guys, if that makes sense. <laughs> So here's what I think we need to learn from them. And that is, I don't think any of us in here are going to, we're worried about one of us going out and killing someone. Be clear about that, obviously. But there are times where we act rashly out of anger and with little thought. And sometimes when we do that, we can even bring God into it like these men did. With little consideration, just acting out without 
thinking about it or in prayer, and we just sometimes kind of expect, well, of course God's on our side. You know, he's, we're on his team, so of course he's just going to go along with whatever I do. And these men thought that God was on their side, and they committed a wicked act. And that ought to cause us um, a moment of thought there. Could I actually be involved in sin and thinking because I haven't prayed about it, because I haven't given it much consideration? I could actually be thinking that God approves, and because I haven't thought it through, be actually committing sin. Well, we could probably look back at each of our lives and think of times where we thought we were doing what was right, and later on, God pointed out to us we were wrong, and it's like, how did I miss that? Well, I guess I didn't pray about it. I guess I really didn't give consideration before I acted on what I thought was best. And these men weren't acting for the good of the kingdom when it comes down to it. This is for their own benefit and gain. And so, certainly, we need to be careful that before, when we get very worked up or passionate about something, still take time to pray about it before you act. Take time to think it through. Is this really what God wants me to do so that I don't make that kind of error? And another aspect of this, and then we'll go to prayer, is this whole thing about, again, David honoring God's man. David was careful to do this, and he expected the people around him to honor the man that God had anointed as a leader. God's anointed in David's mind, and this was the right take on it. God's man still needed to be respected and unharmed because he represented the authority of God to the people. And David looked at Ishbosheth and said, you know, this kingdom's divided. I don't like this situation, but God's in control. David had seen enough of God's work in his life. He knew God's sovereign control, and he says, God's going to take care of that. That's not my business to take care of that. He's waiting on God's timing. But you could say this. I think that David did recognize that Ishbosheth's um, kingship was illegitimate because even Abner and the elders in Israel made note of the fact they knew that God, God's choice was David. Remember that? So I think David could have looked at Ishbosheth and said, you know, it's illegitimate. I know God wants me to be king, but I'm going to wait for God's timing. So here's, here's the application for that. Do we have leaders today that we tend to, without getting too specific, we look at as illegitimate? And we look at a number of leaders even in, in, in our nation things, and we're frustrated. We maybe are concerned about how they got into power. We look at them and say, that's not right. They're not supposed to be the leaders. And that frustrates us. What I'm reminded as I look at Ishbosheth's life and David's response to it, even when we think that leadership is illegitimate, we still need to honor the position because God has allowed them, even though we don't like to think about this all the time, God for some reason has allowed them to lead over us. So we need to be careful. And that's hard for me too. It, it angers me and it angers us when we look at leadership where we, we kind of question how we got the leaders that we did at times and say, that's not right. But God's still sovereignly in control. And if he didn't want them in leadership, could have could have made a different outcome on those things. So let's remember God's sovereignty and the leadership that we have and remember David's commitment to honoring them. Although, remember, again, that doesn't mean that we agree with everything that they do. 
Uh, David pointed out, Jonathan pointed out when Saul was wrong. That's not wrong to do. I need to do that, and we need to do that when people are making choices and legislation that goes against what God's word says. We call them out on it. At the same time, we realize, and yet God has a purpose for them being there. So, Lord, help me to honor their position, honoring you, your ways, ultimately, in, in your sovereign control. So I hope that's helpful.